voicerepublic.com, home to the spoken word. Nine, mediation, the search for a mechanism. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a nail. Anonymous. In ordinary language, the question "why" has at least two versions. The first is straightforward. You can see an effect, and you want to know the cause. Your grandfather is lying in the hospital, and you ask, "Why? How could he have had a heart attack when he seemed so healthy?" But there is a second version of the "why" question, which we ask when we want to better understand the connection between a known cause and a known effect. For instance, we observe that drug B prevents heart attacks, or like James Lind, we observe that citrus fruits prevent scurvy. The human mind is restless and always wants to know more. Before long, we start asking the second version of the question: Why? What is the mechanism by which citrus fruits prevent scurvy? This chapter focuses on this second version of why. The search for mechanisms is critical to science as well as to everyday life because different mechanisms call for different actions when circumstances change. Suppose we run out of oranges. Knowing the mechanism by which oranges work, we can still prevent scurvy. We simply need another source of vitamin C. If we didn't know the mechanism, we might be tempted to try bananas. The word that scientists use for the second type of why question is mediation. You might read in a journal a statement like this: "The effect of drug B on heart attacks is mediated by its effect on blood pressure." This statement encodes a simple causal model: drug A affects blood pressure, blood pressure affects heart attack. In this case, the drug reduces high blood pressure, which in turn reduces the risk of heart attack. Biologists typically use a different symbol when cause A inhibits effect B, but in the causality literature, it is customary to use A affects or leads to B, both for positive and negative causes. Likewise, we can summarize the effect of citrus fruits on scurvy by the causal model. Citrus fruits affect vitamin C, and vitamin C affects scurvy. We want to ask certain typical questions about a mediator. Does it account for the entire effect? Does drug B work exclusively through blood pressure, or perhaps through other mechanisms as well? The placebo effect is a common type of mediator in medicine. If a drug acts only through the patient's belief in its benefit. Most doctors will consider it ineffective. Mediation is also an important concept in the law. If we ask whether a company discriminated against women when it paid them lower salaries, we are asking a mediation question. The answer depends on whether the observed salary disparity is produced directly in response to the applicant's sex or indirectly through a mediator, such as qualification. Over which the employer has no control. All of the above questions require a sensitive ability to tease apart total effects, direct effects, which do not pass through a mediator, and indirect effects, 
which do. Even defining these terms has been a major challenge for scientists over the past century. Inhibited by the taboos against uttering the word causation, some tried to define mediation using a causality-free vocabulary. Others dismissed mediation analysis altogether and declared the concepts of direct and indirect effects as more deceptive than helpful to clear statistical thinking. For me, too, mediation was a struggle, ultimately one of the most rewarding of my career, because I was wrong at first, and as I was learning from my mistake, I came up with an unexpected solution. For a while, I was of the opinion that indirect effects have no operational implications, because, unlike direct effects, they cannot be defined in the language of interventions. It was a personal breakthrough when I realized that they can be defined in terms of counterfactuals, and that they can also have important policy implications. They can be quantified only after we have reached the third rung of the ladder of causation and that is why I have placed them at the end of this book. Mediation has flourished in its new habitat and enabled us to quantify, often from the bare data, the portion of the effect mediated by any desired path. Understandably, due to their counterfactual dressing, indirect effects remain somewhat enigmatic, even among champions of the causal revolution. I believe that their overwhelming usefulness, however, will eventually overcome any lingering doubts over the metaphysics of counterfactuals. Perhaps they could be compared to irrational and imaginary numbers. They made people uncomfortable at first, hence the name irrational, but eventually their usefulness transformed discomfort into delight. To illustrate this point, I will give several examples of how researchers in various disciplines have gleaned useful insights from mediation analysis. One researcher studied an education reform called Algebra for All, which at first seemed a failure, but later turned into a success. A study of tourniquet use in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars failed to show that it had any benefit. Careful mediation analysis explains why the benefit may have been masked in the study. In summary, over the last 15 years, the causal revolution has uncovered clear and simple rules for quantifying how much of a given effect is direct and how much is indirect. It has transformed mediation from a poorly understood concept with doubtful legitimacy into a popular and widely applicable tool for scientific analysis. Scurvy, the Wrong Mediator I would like to begin with a truly appalling historical example that highlights the importance of understanding the mediator. One of the earliest examples of a controlled experiment was Sea Captain James Lynn's study of scurvy, published in 1747. In Lynn's time, scurvy was a terrifying disease, estimated to have killed two million sailors between 1500 and 1800. Lind established, as conclusively as anybody could at that time, that a diet of citrus fruit prevented sailors from developing this dread disease. By the early 1800s, scurvy had become a problem of the past for the British Navy, as all its ships took to the seas 
with an adequate supply of citrus fruit. This is usually the point at which history books end the story, celebrating a great triumph of the scientific method. It seems very surprising, then, that this completely preventable disease made an unexpected comeback a century later when British expeditions started to explore the polar regions. The British Arctic Expedition of 1875, the Jackson-Harmsworth Expedition to the Arctic in 1894, and most notably the two expeditions of Robert Falcon Scott to Antarctica in 1903 and 1911, all suffered greatly from scurvy. How could this have happened? In two words, ignorance and arrogance. Always a potent combination. By 1900, the leading physicians in Britain had forgotten the lessons of a century before. Scott's physician on the 1903 expedition, Dr. Reginald Ketlitz, attributed scurvy to tainted meat. Further, he added, the benefit of the so-called antiscorbutics, that is, scurvy preventative such as lime juice, is a delusion. In his 1911 expedition, Scott stocked dried meat that had been scrupulously inspected for signs of decay, but no citrus fruits or juices. See figure 9-1. The trust he placed in the doctor's opinion may have contributed to the tragedy that followed. All of the five men who made it to the South Pole died, two of an unspecified illness that was most likely scurvy. One team member turned back before the pole and made it back alive, but with a severe case of scurvy. With hindsight, Ketlitz's advice borders on criminal malpractice. How could the lesson of James Lind been so thoroughly forgotten, or worse, dismissed, a century later? The explanation, in part, is that doctors did not really understand how citrus fruits worked against scurvy. In other words, they did not know the mediator. From Lynn's day onward, it had always been believed, but never proved, that citrus fruits prevented scurvy as a result of their acidity. In other words, doctors understood the process to be governed by the following causal diagram. Citrus fruits affect acidity, and acidity affects scurvy. From this point of view, any acid would work. Even Coca-Cola would work, although it had not yet been invented. At first, sailors used Spanish lemons. Then, for economic reasons, they substituted West Indian limes, which were as acidic as the Spanish lemons, but contained only a quarter of the vitamin C. To make things worse, they started purifying the lime juice by cooking it, which may have broken down whatever vitamin C it still contained. In other words, they were disabling the mediator. When the sailors on the 1875 Arctic expedition fell ill with scurvy, despite taking lime juice, the medical community was thrown into utter confusion. Those sailors who had eaten freshly killed meat did not get scurvy, while those who had eaten tinned meat did. Ketlitz and others blamed improperly preserved meat as the culprit. Sir Almroth Wright concocted a theory that bacteria in the supposedly tainted meat caused ptomaine poisoning, which then led to scurvy. Meanwhile, the theory that citrus fruits could prevent scurvy was consigned to the dustbin.
The situation was not straightened out until the true mediator was discovered. In 1912, a Polish biochemist named Casimir Funk proposed the existence of micronutrients that he called vitamins. By 1930, Albert Zent Georgi had isolated the particular nutrient that prevented scurvy. It was not any old acid, but one acid in particular, now known as vitamin C or ascorbic acid, a nod to its antiscorbutic past. Zent Georgi received the Nobel Prize for his discovery in 1937. Thanks to Zent Georgi, we now know the actual causal path. Citrus fruits affect vitamin C, and vitamin C affects scurvy. I think that it is fair to predict that scientists will never forget this causal path again, and I think the reader will agree that mediation analysis is more than an abstract mathematical exercise. Nature versus Nurture The Tragedy of Barbara Burks To the best of my knowledge, the first person to explicitly represent a mediator with a diagram was a Stanford graduate student named Barbara Burks in 1926. This very little-known pioneer in women's science is one of the true heroes of this book. There's reason to believe that she actually invented path diagrams independently of Sewell Wright. And in regard to mediation, she was ahead of Wright and decades ahead of her time. Burke's main research interest throughout her unfortunately brief career was the role of nature versus nurture in determining human intelligence. Her advisor at Stanford was Lewis Terman, a psychologist famous for developing the Stanford Binet IQ test, and a firm believer that intelligence was inherited, not acquired. Bear in mind that this was the heyday of the eugenics movement, now discredited, but at that time legitimized by the active research of people like Francis Galton, Carl Pearson, and Terman. The nature versus nurture debate is, of course, a very old one that continued long after Burke's. Her unique contribution was to boil it down to a causal diagram, see figure 9-2, which she used to ask and answer the query, how much of the causal effect is due to the direct path parental intelligence leads to child's intelligence, nature, and how much is due to the indirect path parental intelligence leads to social status, social status leads to child's intelligence, nurture. In this diagram, Burks has used some double-headed arrows, either to represent mutual causation or simply out of uncertainty about the direction of causation. For simplicity, we are going to assume that the main effect of both arrows goes from left to right, which makes social status a mediator, so that the parent's intelligence elevates their social standing, and this in turn gives the child a better opportunity to develop his or her intelligence. The variable X represents other unmeasured remote causes. In her dissertation, Burks collected data from extensive home visits to 204 families with foster children, who would presumably get only the benefits of nurture 
and none of the benefits of nature from their foster parents. See figure 9-3. She gave IQ tests to all of them and to a control group of 105 families without foster children. In addition, she gave them questionnaires that she used to grade various aspects of the child's social environment. Using her data and path analysis, she computed the direct effect of parental IQ on children's IQ and found that only 35% or about one-third of IQ variation is inherited. In other words, parents with an IQ 15 points above average would typically have children five points above average. As a disciple of Terman, Burks must have been disappointed to see such a small effect. In fact, her estimates have held up quite well over time. So she questioned the then-accepted method of analysis, which was to control for social status. The true measure of contribution of a cause to an effect is mutilated, she wrote, if we have rendered constant variables which may in part or in whole be caused by either of the two factors whose true relationship is to be measured, or by still other unmeasured remote causes which also affect either of the two isolated factors. In other words, if you are interested in the total effect of parental intelligence on child's intelligence, you should not adjust for render constant, any variable on the pathway between them. But Burks didn't stop there. Her italicized criterion, translated into modern language, reads that a bias will be introduced if we condition on variables that are a. effects of either parental intelligence or child's intelligence, or b effects of unmeasured causes of either parental intelligence or child's intelligence, such as X in figure 9-2. These criteria were far ahead of their time, and unlike anything that Sewell Wright had written. In fact, criterion B is one of the earliest examples ever of collider bias. If we look at figure 9-2, we see that social status is a collider. Parental intelligence leads to social status, and X leads to social status. Therefore, controlling for social status opens the backdoor path parental intelligence leads to social status, X leads to social status, and X leads to child's intelligence. Any resulting estimate of the indirect and direct effects will be biased, because statisticians before and after Burke's did not think in terms of arrows and diagrams, they were totally immersed in the myth that while simple correlation has no causal implications, controlled correlation, or partial regression coefficients, is a step in the direction of causal explanation. Burks was not the first person to discover the collider effect, but one can argue that she was the first to characterize it generally in graphical terms. Her criterion B applies perfectly to the examples of M-bias in Chapter 4. Hers is the first warning ever against conditioning on a pre-treatment factor, a habit deemed safe by all 20th century statisticians and oddly still considered safe by some. Now, 
Put yourself in Barbara Burke's shoes. You have just discovered that all your colleagues have been controlling for the wrong variables. You have two strikes against you. You're only a student, and you're a woman. What do you do? Do you put your head down, pretend to accept the conventional wisdom, and communicate with your colleagues in their inadequate vocabulary? Not Barbara Burks. She titled her first published paper "On the Inadequacy of the Partial and Multiple Correlation Technique," and started it out by saying. Logical considerations lead to the conclusion that the techniques of partial and multiple correlation are fraught with dangers that seriously restrict their applicability. Fighting words from someone who doesn't have a Ph.D. yet. As Terman wrote, her ability was somewhat tempered by her tendency to rub people the wrong way. I think the trouble lay partly in the fact that she was more aggressive in standing up for her own ideas than many teachers and male graduate students liked. Evidently, Burks was ahead of her time in more ways than one. Burks may actually have invented path diagrams independently of Sewell Wright, who preceded her only by six years. We can say for sure that she didn't learn them in any class. Figure nine two is the first appearance of a path diagram outside Sewell Wright's work, and the first ever in the social or behavioral sciences. True, she credits Wright at the very end of her 1926 paper, but she does so in a manner that looks like a last-minute addition. I have a hunch that she found out about Wright's diagrams only after she had drawn her own, possibly after being tipped off by Terman or an astute reviewer. It is fascinating to wonder what Burks might have become had she not been a victim of her times. After obtaining her doctorate, she never managed to get a job as a professor at a university, for which she was certainly qualified. She had to make do with less secure research positions, for example, at the Carnegie Institution. In 1942, she got engaged, which one might have expected to mark an upturn in her fortunes. Instead, she went into a deep depression. I am convinced that whether right or not, she was sure some sinister change was going on in her brain, from which she could never recover. Her mother, Frances Burks, wrote to Terman. So, in tenderest love to us all, she chose to spare us the grief of sharing with her the spectacle of such a tragic decline. On May twenty-fifth, nineteen forty-three, at age forty, she jumped to her death from the George Washington Bridge in New York. But ideas have a way of surviving tragedies. When sociologists Hubert Blaylock and Otis Duncan resuscitated path analysis in the nineteen sixties, Burke's paper served as the source of their inspiration. Duncan explained that one of his mentors, William Fielding Ogburn, Had briefly mentioned path coefficients in his 1946 lecture on partial correlations. Ogburn had a report of a brief paper by Wright, the one that dealt with Burke's material, and I acquired this reprint. Duncan said, "So there we have it. Burke's 1926 paper got Wright interested in the inappropriate use of partial correlations. 
Wright's response found its way into Ogburn's lecture twenty years later and implanted itself into Duncan's mind. Twenty years after that, when Duncan read Blaylock's work on path diagrams, it called back this half-forgotten memory from his student years. It's truly amazing to see how this fragile butterfly of an idea fluttered almost unnoticed through two generations before re-emerging triumphantly into the light. In Search of a Language The Berkeley Admissions Paradox Despite Burke's early work, half a century later, statisticians were struggling even to express the idea of, let alone estimate, direct and indirect effects. A case in point is a well-known paradox related to Simpson's paradox, but with a twist. In 1973, Eugene Hamill, an associate dean at the University of California, noticed a worrisome trend in the university's admission rates for men and women. His data showed that 44% of the men who applied to graduate school at Berkeley had been accepted, compared to only 35% of the women. Gender discrimination was coming to wide public attention, and Hamill didn't want to wait for someone else to start asking questions. He decided to investigate the reasons for the disparity. Graduate admissions decisions, at Berkeley as at other universities, are made by individual departments rather than by the university as a whole. So it made sense to look at the admissions data department by department to isolate the culprit. But when he did so, Hamill discovered an amazing fact. Department after department, the admissions decisions were consistently more favorable to women than to men. How could this be? At this point, Hamill did something smart. He called a statistician. Peter Bickle, when asked to look at the data, immediately recognized a form of Simpson's paradox. As we saw in Chapter 6, Simpson's paradox refers to a trend that seems to go in one direction in each layer of a population. Women are accepted at a higher rate in each department. But in the opposite direction for the whole population. Men are accepted at a higher rate in the university as a whole. We also saw in Chapter 6 that the correct resolution of the paradox depends very much on the question you want to answer. In this case, the question is clear. Is the university, or someone within the university, discriminating against women? When I first told my wife about this example, her reaction was, it's impossible. If each department discriminates one way, the school cannot discriminate the other way. And she's right. The paradox offends our understanding of discrimination, which is a causal concept, involving preferential response to an applicant's reported sex. If all actors prefer one sex over the other, the group as a whole must show that same preference. If the data seem to say otherwise, it must mean that we are not processing the data properly, in accordance with the logic of causation. Only with such logic and with a clear causal story can we determine the university's innocence or guilt. In fact, Bickle and Hamill found a causal story that completely satisfied them. They wrote an article, 
published in Science Magazine in 1975, proposing a simple explanation. Women were rejected in greater numbers because they applied to harder departments to get into. To be specific, a higher proportion of females than males applied to departments in the humanities and social sciences. There they faced a double whammy. The number of students applying to get in was greater, and the number of places for those students was smaller. On the other hand, females did not apply as often to departments like mechanical engineering, which were easier to get into. These departments had more money and more spaces for graduate students. In short, a higher acceptance rate. Why did women apply to departments that are harder to get into? Perhaps they were discouraged from applying to technical fields because they had more math requirements or were perceived as more masculine. Perhaps they had been discriminated against at earlier stages of their education. Society tended to push women away from technical fields, as Barbara Burke's story shows far too clearly. But these circumstances were not under Berkeley's control, and hence would not constitute discrimination by the university. Bickle and Hamill concluded the campus as a whole did not engage in discrimination against women applicants. At least in passing, I would like to take note of the precision of Bickle's language in this paper. He carefully distinguishes between two terms that, in common English, are often taken as synonyms, bias and discrimination. He defines bias as a pattern of association between a particular decision and a particular sex of applicant. Note the words pattern and association. They tell us that bias is a phenomenon on rung one of the ladder of causation. On the other hand, he defines discrimination as the exercise of decision influenced by the sex of the applicant when that is immaterial to the qualifications for entry. Words like exercise of decision, influence, and immaterial are redolent of causation, even if Bickle could not bring himself to utter that word in 1975. Discrimination, unlike bias, belongs on rung two or three of the ladder of causation. In his analysis, Bickle felt that the data should be stratified by department, because the departments were the decision-making units. Was this the right call? To answer that question, we start by drawing a causal diagram, figure 9-4. It is also very illuminating to look at the definition of discrimination in U.S. case law. It uses counterfactual terminology, a clear signal that we have climbed to level three of the ladder of causation. In Carson v. Bethlehem Steel Corporation, 1996, the Seventh Circuit Court wrote, The central question in any employment discrimination case is whether the employer would have taken the same action had the employee been of a different race, age, sex, religion, national origin, etc., and everything else had been the same. This definition clearly expresses the idea that we should disable or freeze all causal pathways that lead from gender to admission through any other variable. 
for example, qualification, choice of department, etc. In other words, discrimination equals the direct effect of gender on the admission outcome. We have seen before that conditioning on a mediator is incorrect if we want to estimate the total effect of one variable on another. But in a case of discrimination, according to the court, it is not the total effect, but the direct effect that matters. Thus, Bickel and Hamel are vindicated. Under the assumptions shown in Figure 9.4, they were right to partition the data by departments, and their result provides a valid estimate of the direct effect of gender on outcome. They succeeded even though the language of direct and indirect effects was not available to Bickel in 1973. However, the most interesting part of this story is not the original paper that Bickel and Hamill wrote, but the discussion that followed it. After their paper was published, William Kruskal of the University of Chicago wrote a letter to Bickel arguing that their explanation did not really exonerate Berkeley. In fact, Kruskal queried whether any purely observational study, as opposed to a randomized experiment, say, using fake application forms, could ever do so. To me, their exchange of letters is fascinating. It is not very often that we can witness two great minds struggling with a concept, causation, for which they lacked an adequate vocabulary. Bickel would later go on to earn a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant in 1984. But in 1975, he was at the beginning of his career, and it must have been both an honor and a challenge for him to match wits with Kruskal, a giant of the American statistics community. In his letter to Bickel, Kruskal pointed out that the relation between department and outcome could have an unmeasured confounder such as state of residence. He worked out a numerical example for a hypothetical university with two sex-discriminating departments that produce exactly the same data as in Bickel's example. He did this by assuming that both departments accept all in-state males and out-of-state females and reject all out-of-state males and in-state females, and that this is their only decision criterion. Clearly, this admissions policy is a blatant textbook example of discrimination. But because the total numbers of applicants of each gender accepted and rejected were exactly the same as in Bickel's example, Bickel would have to conclude that there was no discrimination. According to Kruskal, the departments appear innocent because Bickel has controlled for only one variable instead of two. Kruskal put his finger exactly on the weak spot in Bickel's paper, the lack of a clearly justified criterion for determining which variables to control for. Kruskal did not offer a solution, and in fact his letter despairs of ever finding one. Unlike Kruskal, we can draw a diagram and see exactly what the problem is. Figure 9.5 shows the causal diagram representing Kruskal's counterexample. Does it look slightly familiar? It should. It is exactly the same diagram that Barbara Burks drew in 1926, but with different variables. One is tempted to say, great minds think alike, but perhaps it would be more appropriate to say that great problems attract great minds.
Kruskal argued that the analysis in this situation should control for both the department and the state of residence, and a look at Figure 9-5 explains why this is so. To disable all but the direct path, we need to stratify by department. This closes the indirect path, gender affects department and department affects outcome, but in so doing we open the spurious path, gender affects department, State of residence affects department, and state of residence affects outcome, because of the collider at department. If we control for state of residence as well, we close this path, and therefore any correlation remaining must be due to the discriminatory direct path, gender affects outcome. Lacking diagrams, Kruskal had to convince Bickel with numbers. And in fact, his numbers showed the same thing. If we do not adjust for any variables, then females have a lower admission rate. If we adjust for department, then females appear to have a higher admission rate. If we adjust for both department and state of residence, then once again the numbers show a lower admission rate for females. From arguments like this, you can see why the concept of mediation aroused and still arouses such suspicions. It seems unstable and hard to pin down. First, the admission rates are biased against women, then against men, then against women. In his reply to Kruskal, Bickel continued to maintain that conditioning on a decision-making unit, department, is somehow different from conditioning on a criterion for a decision, state of residence but he did not sound at all confident about it. He asks plaintively, I see a non-statistical question here. What do we mean by bias? Why does the bias sign change depending on the way we measure it? In fact, he had the right idea when he distinguished between bias and discrimination. Bias is a slippery statistical notion which may disappear if you slice the data a different way. Discrimination as a causal concept reflects reality and must remain stable. The missing phrase in both their vocabularies was, hold constant. To disable the indirect path from gender to outcome, we must hold constant the variable department and then tweak the variable gender. When we hold the department constant, we prevent, figuratively speaking, the applicants from choosing which department to apply to. Because statisticians do not have a word for this concept, they do something superficially similar. They condition on department. That was exactly what Bickel had done. He looked at the data department by department, and concluded that there was no evidence of discrimination against women. That procedure is valid when department and outcome are unconfounded. In that case, seeing is the same as doing. But Kroskel correctly asked, what if there is a confounder state of residence? He probably didn't realize that he was following in the footsteps of Burks, who had drawn essentially the same diagram. I cannot stress enough how often this blunder has been repeated over the years, conditioning on the mediator instead of holding the mediator constant. 
For that reason, I call it the mediation fallacy. Admittedly, the blunder is harmless if there is no confounding of the mediator and the outcome. However, if there is confounding, it can completely reverse the analysis, as Kruskal's numerical example showed. It can lead the investigator to conclude there is no discrimination when in fact there is. Burks and Kruskal were unusual in recognizing the mediation fallacy as a blunder, although they didn't exactly offer a solution. R. A. Fisher fell victim to the same blunder in 1936, and 80 years later statisticians are still struggling with the problem. Fortunately, there has been huge progress since the time of Fisher. Epidemiologists, for example, now know that one has to watch out for confounders between mediator and outcome. Yet those who eschew the language of diagrams, some economists still do, complain and confess that it is a torture to explain what this warning means. Thankfully, the problem that Kruskal once called, perhaps insoluble, was solved two decades ago. I have this strange feeling that Kruskal would have enjoyed the solution, and in my fantasy I imagine showing him the power of the do calculus and the algorithmization of counterfactuals. Unfortunately, he retired in 1990, just when the rules of do calculus were being shaped, and he died in 2005. I'm sure that some readers are wondering, what finally happened in the Berkeley case? The answer is nothing. Hamill and Bickle were convinced that Berkeley had nothing to worry about, and indeed no lawsuits or federal investigations ever materialized. The data hinted at reverse discrimination against males, and in fact there was explicit evidence of this. In most of the cases involving favored status for women, it appears that the admissions committees were seeking to overcome long-established shortages of women in their fields, Bickle wrote. Just three years later, a lawsuit over affirmative action on another campus of the University of California went all the way to the Supreme Court. Had the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action, such favored status for women might have become illegal. However, the Supreme Court upheld affirmative action, and the Berkeley case became a historical footnote. A wise man leaves the final word not with the Supreme Court, but with his wife. Why did mine have such a strong intuitive conviction that it is utterly impossible for a school to discriminate while each of its departments acts fairly? It is a theorem of causal calculus similar to the sure thing principle. The sure thing principle, as Jimmy Savage originally stated it, pertains to total effects, while this theorem holds for direct effects. The very definition of a direct effect on a global level relies on aggregating direct effects in the subpopulations. To put it succinctly, local fairness everywhere implies global fairness. My wife was right. Daisy, the Kittens, and Indirect Effects So far we have discussed the concepts of direct and indirect effects in a vague and intuitive way, but I have not given them a precise scientific meaning. It is long past time for us to rectify this omission. 
Let's start with a direct effect, because it is undoubtedly easier, and we can define a version of it using the do calculus, that is, at rung two of the ladder of causation. We'll consider first the simplest case, which includes three variables, a treatment, X, an outcome, Y, and a mediator, M. We get the direct effect of X on Y when we wiggle X without allowing M to change. In the context of the Berkeley Admissions Paradox example, we force everybody to apply to the history department. That is, we do M equals zero. We randomly assign some people to report their sex on the application as male, do X equals one, and some to report it as female, do X equals zero, regardless of their actual genders. Then we observe the difference in admission rates between the two reporting groups. The result is called the Controlled Direct Effect, or CDE, parentheses, zero. In symbols, CDE, parentheses, zero, equals the P of Y equals one, given do X equals one, do M equals zero, minus the P of Y equals one, given do X equals zero, do M equals zero. The zero in CDE parentheses zero indicates that we forced the mediator to take on the value zero. We could also do the same experiment forcing everybody to apply to engineering, do M equals one. We would denote the resulting controlled direct effect as CDE parentheses one. Already, we see one difference between direct effects and total effects. We have two different versions of the controlled direct effect, CDE parentheses zero and CDE parentheses one. Which one is right? One option is simply to report both versions. Indeed, it is not unthinkable that one department will discriminate against females and the other against males and it would be interesting to find out who does what. That was, after all, Hamill's original intention. However, I would not recommend running this experiment, and here's why. Imagine an applicant named Joe, whose lifetime dream is to study engineering, and who happened to be, randomly, assigned to apply to the history department. Having sat on a few admissions committees, I can categorically vow that Joe's application would look awfully strange to the committee, his A-plus in electromagnetic waves and B-minus in European nationalism would totally distort the committee's decision, regardless of whether he marked male or female on his application. The proportion of males and females admitted under these distortions would hardly reflect the admissions policy compared to applicants who normally apply to the history department. Luckily, an alternative avoids the pitfalls of this over-controlled experiment. We instruct the applicants to report a randomized gender, but to apply to the department they would have preferred. We call this the natural direct effect, NDE, because every applicant ends up in a department of his or her choice. The would-have phrasing is a clue that NDE's formal definition requires counterfactuals. For readers who enjoy mathematics, here is the definition expressed as a formula. NDE equals 
The P of Y sub M equals M sub zero equals one given do X equals one minus the P of Y sub M equals M sub zero equals one given do X equals zero. The interesting term is the first, which stands for the probability that a female student selecting a department of her choice, M equals M sub zero, would be admitted if she faked her sex to read male, do X equals one. Here, the choice of department is governed by the actual sex, while admission is decided by the reported fake sex. Since the former cannot be mandated, we cannot translate this term to one involving do operators. We need to invoke the counterfactual subscript. Now you know how we define the controlled direct effect and the natural direct effect. But how do we compute them? The task is simple for the controlled direct effect because it can be expressed as a do expression. We need only use the laws of do calculus to reduce the do expressions to C expressions, that is, conditional probabilities which can be estimated from observational data. The natural direct effect poses a greater challenge, though, because it cannot be defined in a do expression. It requires the language of counterfactuals, and hence it cannot be estimated using the do calculus. It was one of the greatest thrills in my life when I managed to strip the formula for the NDE from all of its counterfactual subscripts. The result, called the mediation formula, makes the NDE a truly practical tool because we can estimate it from observational data. Indirect effects, unlike direct effects, have no controlled version because there's no way to disable the direct path by holding some variable constant. But they do have a natural version, the natural indirect effect, NIE, which is defined, like NDE, using counterfactuals. To motivate the definition, I will consider a somewhat playful example that my co-author suggested. My co-author and his wife adopted a dog named Daisy, a rambunctious poodle and chihuahua mix with a mind of her own. Daisy was not as easy to house train as their previous dog, and after several weeks she was still having occasional accidents inside the house. But then something very odd happened. Dana and his wife brought home three foster kittens from the animal shelter, and the accidents stopped. The foster kittens remained with them for three weeks, and Daisy did not break her training a single time during that period. Was it just coincidence, or had the kittens somehow inspired Daisy to civilized behavior? Dana's wife suggested that the kittens might have given Daisy a sense of belonging to a pack, and she would not want to mess up the area where the pack lived. This theory was reinforced when, a few days after the kittens went back to the shelter, Daisy started urinating in the house again as if she had never heard of good manners. But then it occurred to Dana that something else had changed when the kittens arrived and departed. While the kittens had been there, Daisy had to be either separated from them or carefully supervised. So she spent long periods in her crate, 
or being closely watched by a human, even leashed to a human. Both interventions, crating and leashing, also happen to be recognized methods for housebreaking. When the kittens left, the Mackenzies stopped the intensive supervision and the uncouth behavior returned. Dana hypothesized that the effect of the kittens was not direct, as in the pack theory, but indirect, mediated by crating and supervision. Figure 9-6 shows a causal graph. At this point, Dana and his wife tried an experiment. They treated Daisy as they would have with kittens around, keeping her in a crate and supervising her carefully outside the crate. If the accident stopped, they could reasonably conclude that the mediator was responsible. If they didn't stop, then the direct effect, the pack psychology, would become more plausible. In the hierarchy of scientific evidence, their experiment would be considered very shaky certainly not one that could ever be published in a scientific journal. A real experiment would have to be carried out on more than just one dog, and in both the presence and absence of the kittens. Nevertheless, it is the causal logic behind the experiment that concerns us here. We are intending to recreate what would have happened had the kittens not been present and had the mediator been set to the value it would take with the kittens present. In other words, we remove the kittens, intervention number one, and supervise the dog as we would if the kittens were present, intervention number two. When you look carefully at the above paragraph, you might notice two would-haves, which are counterfactual conditions. The kittens were present when the dog changed her behavior, but we ask what would have happened if they had not been present. Likewise, if the kittens had not been present, Dana would not have supervised Daisy. But we ask what would have happened if he had. You can see why statisticians struggled for so long to define indirect effects. If even a single counterfactual was outlandish, then double-nested counterfactuals were completely beyond the pale. Nevertheless, this definition conforms closely with our natural intuition about causation. Our intuition is so compelling that Dana's wife, with no special training, readily understood the logic of the proposed experiment. For readers who are comfortable with formulas, here is how to define the NIE that we just described in words. NIE equals the P of Y sub M equals M sub 1 equals 1, given do X equals 0, minus the P of Y sub M equals M sub zero equals one, given do X equals zero. The first P term is the outcome of the DAISY experiment. The probability of successful house training, Y equals one, given that we do not introduce other pets, X equals zero, but set the mediator to the value it would have if we had introduced them, M equals M sub one. We contrast this with the probability of successful house training under normal conditions with no other pets. Note that the counterfactual, M sub 1, has to be computed for each animal on a case-by-case -case basis. Different dogs might have different needs for crating or supervision. This puts the indirect effect out of reach of the do calculus. It may also render the experiment unfeasible 
because the experimenter may not know M sub 1 of U for a particular dog U. Nevertheless, assuming there is no confounding between M and Y, the natural indirect effect can still be computed. It is possible to remove all the counterfactuals from the NIE and arrive at a mediation formula for it, like the one for NDE. This quantity, which requires information from the third rung of the ladder of causation, can nevertheless be reduced to an expression that can be computed with rung 1 data. Such a reduction is only possible because we have made an assumption of no confounding, which, owing to the deterministic nature of the equations in a structural causal model, is on rung 3. To finish Daisy's story, the experiment was inconclusive. It's questionable whether Dana and his wife monitored Daisy as carefully as they would have if they had been keeping her away from kittens. So it's not clear that M was truly set to M sub 1. With patience and time, it took several months, Daisy eventually learned to do her business outside. Even so, Daisy's story holds some useful lessons. Simply by being attuned to the possibility of a mediator, Dana was able to conjecture another causal mechanism. That mechanism had an important practical consequence. He and his wife did not have to keep the house filled with a foster kitten pack for the rest of Daisy's life. Mediation in Linear Wonderland When you first hear about counterfactuals, you might wonder if such an elaborate machinery is really needed to express an indirect effect. Surely, you might argue, an indirect effect is simply what is left over after you take away the direct effect. Alternatively, we could write, The total effect equals the direct effect plus indirect effect. The short answer is that this does not work in models that involve interactions sometimes called moderation. For example, imagine a drug that causes the body to secrete an enzyme that acts as a catalyst. It combines with the drug to cure a disease. The total effect of the drug is, of course, positive, but the direct effect is zero, because if we disable the mediator, for example, by preventing the body from stimulating the enzyme, the drug will not work. The indirect effect is also zero, because if we don't receive the drug and do artificially get the enzyme, then the disease will not be cured. The enzyme itself has no curing power. Thus, equation 9-4 does not hold. The total effect is positive, but the direct and indirect effects are zero. However, equation 9-4 does hold automatically in one situation, with no apparent need to invoke counterfactuals. That is the case of a linear causal model, of the sort that we saw in Chapter 8. As discussed there, linear models do not allow interactions, which can be both a virtue and a drawback. It is a virtue in the sense that it makes mediation analysis much easier. But it is a drawback if we want to describe a real-world causal process that does involve interactions. Because mediation analysis is so much easier for linear models, let's see how it is done and what the pitfalls are. Suppose we have a causal diagram that looks like figure 9-7. 
Because we are working with a linear model, we can represent the length of each effect with a single number. The labels, path coefficients, indicate that increasing the treatment variable by one unit will increase the mediator variable by two units. Similarly, a one-unit increase in mediator will increase outcome by three units, and a one-unit increase in treatment will increase outcome by seven units. These are all direct effects. Here we come to the first reason why linear models are so simple. Direct effects do not depend on the level of the mediator. That is, the controlled direct effect, CDE, parentheses M, is the same for all values M, and we can simply speak of the direct effect. What would be the total effect of an intervention that causes treatment to increase by one unit? First, this intervention directly causes outcome to increase by seven units, if we hold mediator constant. It also causes mediator to increase by two units. Finally, because each one-unit increase in mediator directly causes a three-unit increase in outcome, a two-unit increase in mediator will lead to an additional six-unit increase in outcome. So the net increase in outcome from both causal pathways will be 13 units. The first seven units correspond to the direct effect, and the remaining six units correspond to the indirect effect. Easy as pie. In general, if there is more than one indirect pathway from X to Y, we evaluate the indirect effect along each pathway by taking the product of all the path coefficients along that pathway. Then we get the total indirect effect by adding up all the indirect causal pathways. Finally, the total effect of X on Y is the sum of the direct and indirect effects. This sum of products rule has been used since Sewell Wright invented path analysis, and formally speaking, it indeed follows from the due operator definition of total effect. In 1986, Reuben Barron and David Kenny articulated a set of principles for detecting and evaluating mediation in a system of equations. The essential principles are, first, that the variables are all related by linear equations, which are estimated by fitting them to the data. Second, direct and indirect effects are computed by fitting two equations to the data, one with the mediator included and one with the mediator excluded. Significant change in the coefficients when the mediator is introduced is taken as evidence of mediation. The simplicity and plausibility of the Barron-Kenny method took the social sciences by storm. As of 2014, their article ranks 33rd on the list of most frequently cited scientific papers of all time. As of 2017, Google Scholar reports that 73,000 scholarly articles have cited Barron and Kenny. Just think about that. They've been cited more times than Albert Einstein, more than Sigmund Freud, more than almost any other famous scientist you can think of. Their article ranks second among all papers in psychology and psychiatry. 
And yet, it's not about psychology at all. It's about non-causal mediation. The unprecedented popularity of the Barron-Kenny approach undoubtedly stems from two factors. First, mediation is in high demand. Our desire to understand how nature works, that is, to find the M in X leads to M and M leads to Y, is perhaps even stronger than our desire to quantify it. Second, the method reduces easily to a cookbook procedure that is based on familiar concepts from statistics, a discipline that has long claimed to have exclusive ownership of objectivity and empirical validity. So hardly anyone noticed the grand leap forward involved. The fact that a causal quantity, mediation, was defined and assessed by purely statistical means. However, cracks in this regression-based edifice began to appear in the early 2000s, when practitioners tried to generalize the sum-of-products rule to nonlinear systems. That rule involves two assumptions. Effects along distinct paths are additive, and path coefficients along one path multiply and both of them lead to wrong answers in nonlinear models, as we will see below. It has taken a long time, but the practitioners of mediation analysis have finally woken up. In 2001, my late friend and colleague Rod McDonald wrote, I think the best way to discuss the question of detecting or showing moderation or mediation in a regression is to set aside the entire literature on these topics and start from scratch. The latest literature on mediation seems to heed McDonald's advice. Counterfactual and graphical methods are pursued much more actively than the regression approach. And in 2014, the father of the Baron Kenny approach, David Kenny, posted a new section on his website called Causal Mediation Analysis. Though I would not call him a convert yet, Kenny clearly recognizes that times are changing and that mediation analysis is entering a new era. For now, let's look at one very simple example of how our expectations go wrong when we leave linear wonderland. Consider figure 9-8, a slight modification of figure 9-7, where a job applicant will decide to take a job if and only if the salary offered exceeds a certain threshold value, in our case, 10. The salary offer is determined, as shown in the diagram, by 7 times education plus 3 times skill. Note that the functions determining skill and salary are still assumed to be linear, but the relationship of salary to outcome is nonlinear because it has a threshold effect. Let us compute for this model the total direct and indirect effects associated with increasing education by one unit. The total effect is clearly equal to 1 because as education shifts from 0 to 1, salary goes from 0 to 7 times 1 plus 3 times 2 equals 13, which is above the threshold of 10, making outcome switch from 0 to 1. 
Remember that the natural indirect effect is the expected change in the outcome, given that we make no change to education, but set skill at the level it would take if we had increased education by one. It's easy to see that in this case, salary goes from zero to two times three equals six. This is below the threshold of ten, so the applicant will turn the offer down. Thus, NIE equals zero. Now, what about the direct effect? As mentioned before, we have the problem of figuring out what value to hold the mediator at. If we hold skill at the level it had before we changed education, then salary will increase from zero to seven, making outcome equals zero. Thus, CDE parentheses zero equals zero. On the other hand, if we hold skill at the level it attains after the change in education, namely two, salary will increase from six to thirteen. This changes the outcome from zero to one because thirteen is above the applicant's threshold for accepting the job offer. So, CDE parentheses two equals one. Thus, the direct effect is either zero. Or one, depending on the constant value we choose for the mediator. Unlike in linear Wonderland, the choice of a value for the mediator makes a difference, and we have a dilemma. If we want to preserve the additive principle, total effect equals direct effect plus indirect effect, we need to use CDE parentheses two as our definition of the causal effect. But this seems arbitrary, and even somewhat unnatural. If we are contemplating a change in education and we want to know its direct effect, we would most likely want to keep skill at the level it already has. In other words, it makes more intuitive sense to use CDE parentheses zero as our direct effect. Not only that, this agrees with the natural direct effect in this example. But then we lose additivity. Total effect does not equal direct effect plus indirect effect. However, quite surprisingly, a somewhat modified version of additivity does hold true, not only in this example but in general. Readers who don't mind doing a little computation might be interested in computing the NIE of going back from x equals one. To x equals zero. In this case, the salary offered drops from thirteen to seven, and the outcome drops from one to zero. That is, the applicant does not accept the offer. So, computed in the reverse direction, NIE equals negative one. The cool and amazing fact is that total effect x equals zero leads to x equals one equals NDE x equals zero leads to x equals one minus NIE x equals one leads to x equals zero. VoiceRepublic.com, home to the spoken word.